Welcome to Accelerate Your Business Growth, where we're exploring all sorts of business topics. Experts from around the world join me, your host, Diane Helbig, for a conversation where they share their expertise with all of you. Take what you need, when you need it. Featured on Inc.com, Forbes, and MSNBC's Your Business, this podcast is recognized as one of the best podcasts for small business, sales, leadership, social media, and more. When it comes to business, Accelerate Your Business Growth has got it covered. And now on with the show. My guest today is Jeff Morrill. Jeff co-founded Planet Subaru, your undealership, in 1998 and built it into one of the most successful privately held car dealerships in the United States. He later started other businesses in automotive retail, real estate, telecommunications, and insurance that generate over $100 million in annual revenue. His achievements in building profitable and ethical companies have been featured in a variety of national media, including USA Today, Entrepreneur Magazine, Automotive News, The Boston Globe, and others. Jeff is also the author of Profit Wise. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thank you. So glad to be with you today, Diane. I'm looking forward to sharing some of these ideas in the book with your audience. Well, I got to tell you, I'm so thrilled that you are here. I love your book. And and I do not use that word lightly because I don't love a lot of books, but boy, I was totally consumed with reading your book. Thank you. It, it, it is, it's right in my uh, mindset. So I've been looking forward to us having this conversation. Um, you talk about becoming a smooth listener instead of a smooth talker. And I would love it if you would you know, tell us more about that and how someone becomes a smooth listener, please. I observe that, that um, this is especially true for men, although I've met women that are affected by this problem too, that, that as you become more successful um, and, and as more people around you have an economic incentive to, to depend on you. They tend to encourage you to keep talking. They laugh at your dumb jokes. And, and it's just the way that societies tend to reward successful people is that they, they're allowed to talk. And that being the case doesn't necessarily mean that the things you're going to say are going to really add any value to the conversation. And and by talking too much, you can obviously really interfere with what you're learning because typically when you're talking, you're not acquiring any new insight. You might be delivering some if you're really, really doing a good job of it, but but not necessarily. And and so I think that the key for me was first recognizing that that I didn't need to talk all the time. So let me give you an example in, in a meeting. Now, when I'm um, at one of our businesses and we're having me, I let everybody else do the talking first. Even if I'm hosting the meeting and it's my agenda, I'll announce the topic and then I, I stop talking and I'll let everybody else talk. Often my opinions will eventually get represented by someone else, often more articulately than I could have represented them. And on those rare occasions where they don't come up, then I can talk at the end. And, and I, can, I can point out that there was something that we didn't cover, and I'd like to, to introduce that topic. Um, another way I've found to, to make sure that I'm a smooth listener rather than a smooth talker is to make a habit of asking questions. Mm. Because by asking questions, it, it invites other people to talk. And, and generally, most questions eventually come to an excellent, I'm sorry, a, a question mark at the end. You have to stop or it's not a question. So it forces you, even if you're inclined to want to, to hold, hold forth on a topic or whatever, it, it's just, if you get in that habit of asking questions, you're just necessarily forced by the nature of the, of the inquiry to, to eventually conclude it. And, and then you hand the microphone off to someone else. So I, there's, a, there's a couple of ways I think that are, are very good to do it. Um, I think it starts with just, just recognizing 
that that when you've been talking for more than 60 seconds or two minutes as I've been and just right now as we're speaking, it's probably time to wrap it up. So I will. <laughs> well, I, I love the concept. I mean, I am a firm believer that we should be listening more than we're speaking in all in you know variety of, of aspects of business and that we have to be listening intentionally. So I love this, you know, asking questions because that's really, for me, that's how we discover where someone's mindset is, what's really important to them and how then we can communicate effectively for the situation, for the individual, you know, whatever the circumstances. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And I think even in terms of, I mean, whether these we're talking about contexts at work or even personally, I think about my marriage and how disserved I am when I make a point, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that the, the real, the, the communication that actually occurs is when I can, I can tee something up or ask a question that invites yeah. uh, my wife or, or in a business context, maybe a manager that I'm working with or whatever to, to look at something in a way different than they're accustomed and, and telling them how it is just doesn't work. And I can't believe I had to get to age 49 or almost 49 before I figured that out, but I have, and um, I recommend it. I recommend it as well. Um, now, one of the things that I think is interesting about what you do with meetings where you talk last is I, I would, imagine that if you were speaking first, that could uh, prevent people from actually sharing information because they're hearing you first and you're the leader. So if they have something that might be contrary to the direction you're going in, they, they might be less apt to share. Oh, totally. I think too, I, I noticed this as I got older, when I opened the first business, Planet Subaru in Hanover, Massachusetts, when we did that, we bought a bankrupt Subaru dealership and that was our first one. I was 26 years old and I was just a, I don't know, I was a white male, which tends to invite some level of, of uh, privilege in terms of the perception that people have for leadership in the society. But beyond that, I certainly didn't have the age or the appearance or or the experience or confidence or anything to, to go along with that. And I found that people were, uh, on my team were very eager to disagree with me and, and happy to offer a contrary point of view. But, but as I've gotten older, you know, and I've got a, a head full of gray hair and, and the businesses have matured such that I'm not in the businesses every day. And so when I show up, I almost have this chilling effect. And, and I think that's natural as you grow. It's not just me. I think as people grow in their companies and their stature increases just by the, the tenure of the company. And, and, um, and of course your body changes and, and suggests that you have more experience and wisdom. People are that much less comfortable to voice a contrary opinion or to, um, or to, to take issue with, with something that you said. So it's another benefit. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. And it really gives you the opportunity to see where people's, um, minds are, you know, what they're really thinking, the ideas that they, because I think it would also help uh, generate that uh, innovation and idea energy that um, we really need from the people who are working with us. But if you're a leader who talks first, then I think people defer to you to have all the answers, come up with all the ideas, and then just execute. Yeah, additionally too, I think that, that the people who are responsible for, for making the plan work should be the people who develop yeah. the plan. Yeah. And, and what a silly thing it would be for me to walk into a, a team of, of managers and tell them how it's gonna be and then walk out and not show up again until <laughs> until some time later when when they're the people who are actually responsible for getting it done. So right. so I, I've learned that there are often multiple routes to the same destination, and I might have an idea of how something should work, and mine would probably work um, just as well. Um, 
but it's different than, than what the people would do if they came up with their own solution organically. And I want, I want to have people owning their own solution on the assumption that they're just going to be that much more interested in making it happen. Exactly. I, I used to work for somebody else and I remember what it was like to have, here's your plan, go execute uh-huh. it. And you'd look at the plan and say, this is stupid. Yeah. Like, this isn't going to work. I mean, how am I going to, I mean, what, what level of enthusiasm could I muster for a plan that I didn't believe in? And I, and I, I remember from experience, it wasn't much. And that, exactly. that was impactful for me. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, me too. I, I'm, when I started my own business and people would ask me why I did that, I would say, because I decided I wanted to be the victim of my own decisions instead of the victim of someone else's. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, my, my, uh, the number of years I was going to survive working for somebody else was necessarily going to be very few. And, (laughs) and it was definitely the right thing for me. Interestingly though, that quality alone should not be taken as the signal that you should own your own business. (laughs) Because (laughs) I know people like that, that don't like working for somebody else, but they don't have that, um, group of characteristics, personality variables, whatever it is to, to, for me to recommend that they go own their own business too, because that yes. has its own challenges, obviously. Yes, that, that is a very good point. <laughs> Thank you. So I, I want to talk about the, about hiring, because especially these days, it seems like a lot of companies are having real difficulty either hiring at all or hiring the right people. So will you explain what you mean when you say that the hiring process should look for soldiers instead of just people who look good in a uniform? Yes. So what we're trying to do in our companies, and it took us years to evolve into the system that was capable of doing this, is that we're not really interested in how well you interview. And I think it's a common error in many businesses that they look for a nice resume, they look for... um, qualities that make the interviewers feel comfortable during the interview. And, and that's all well and good to the extent that the things you're looking for in the interview overlap with the job responsibilities. So let me put a fine point on it, an example, and talk about like as an automotive salesperson, you want someone in an interview who can build rapport quickly, who can deflect or, um, or let me see, de-escalate conflict in mm-hmm. a room. I mean, these are things that you want to look for. You want good grooming because you want to make sure that the person pre- presents professionally to customers. I mean, there's just a few examples. But when we're hiring for an automotive technician, really none of those things matter. We need people to be functional interpersonally. I don't mean to say that their, their <laughs> social skills are irrelevant. They need to get along with the team. But yeah. being a technician is, is a pretty... Um, uh, introverted task. You know, you're, you need to interact with a dispatcher who's going to give you the, the, uh, the repair order to, to begin work on the car. And there is some interaction if you get into a, uh, a situation where you need additional opinions on how to solve something really challenging technically. But generally, you don't really need to be that personable to be a technician. And we've hired some technicians that were friendly enough, but, but just they, they interviewed terribly. And we weren't worried one bit because we knew that we were hiring people that needed to be good with their hands and, and had uh, sharp technical minds and, and those kind of skills. And, and just because they weren't very articulate talking about what they thought they were going to be doing in five years or weren't particularly interesting in sharing the hobbies that they do during their off time, it wasn't germane to the job. It wasn't relevant to the job. So, so anyway, the way we make sure that we focus on the skills that are necessary for the job instead of falling in love with, with the, uh, the less important things that you could in a candidate is that we have templates or interview scripts worked out in advance for each position. Okay. And there are other benefits too to that. You make sure that you hold every applicant to the same standard. But by having those interview questions worked out in advance, it forces us to identify what do we really need in this position? And then, and then we dig into that and use our precious interview time to focus on things with a lot of signal value about what that candidate's going to be good at when they join the team. 
Because ultimately, what someone does, whether they have a dog and like walks on the beach, <laughs> or they went to the same university that you did, or they just hit it off with you. I mean, that stuff really is not that important to whether they're going to be able to join your team and, and contribute and, and, and so importantly, stay with you for the long term. I, I totally agree with that. And I'm curious about another aspect of that, which is um, years of experience. So, you know, you were really young when you bought the dealership. I have found that years, and I've interviewed um, people on this podcast who have said, it, you don't necessarily care how many years of experience they've had because you don't know what that experience was. They could have been terrible and just didn't get fired. You really want to know about the results that they've gotten and the, the, um, what the experience was, not how, how long their experience has been. Do you agree with that? Oh, totally. And the other thing, just before I, I jump into the main thread of the question about the dangers of looking at experience is that if they've learned it the wrong way, yeah. then you've got to spend all that time helping them unlearn that, That's which we have discovered is it, at a minimum very difficult and at the extreme, simply impossible to do. Yeah. So in the case of like automotive salespeople, one of the, the things that makes our, our auto dealerships the undealership the alternative to typical dealership is that we intentionally seek people who have not been in the car business. So we're not getting the, the shenanigans and the, what do I have to do to make you buy today? And all that BS that just turns people off oh. and takes all the fun out of buying a car. So we left the fun in and the way we left the fun is we, we hire people that have never done it before, but are interesting people and intelligent and organized. And then and then we train them our way of doing it, which is just consultative. I mean, we ask good questions. Mm -hmm. We find out what the customer needs. We offer them solutions. I mean, that's that's our wow. approach Shocking. in a nutshell. And it, it is not revolutionary in most <laughs> industries, but I promise you in the car business, it's it's uh, almost, we are almost unique <laughs> yeah. in, in offering that. But but let's talk about experience more broadly, just for a moment, that sure. the example, and I talk about this in the book, I I didn't serve in the military, but I'm interested in things military, and and I've I've learned a little about um, aircraft carriers and the people that serve on aircraft carriers. Obviously, the people who fly the F F eighteens off the deck, the the Navy invests many years and tremendous resources into getting those people competent to fly those planes, and and you're you're not going to do that quickly. And you're not going to, to take someone, you know, right out of high school and turn them into a, a precision aviator in a year. However, they're very hazardous and highly responsible positions on the aircraft carrier that the Navy qualifies in less than a year for late teens and early 20-somethings. And, and these positions include the people who load the, the ordnance on the planes, the people who operate the, the remarkably powerful steam catapults that actually throw the planes into the air and all of the other functions that, that occur on the deck. The Navy, the Navy can get people up to speed to do that in less than a year. And I encourage small business owners or, or anyone running a recruiting ad to, to keep that in mind before you, you require five years of experience and a master's degree to do a position that doesn't necessarily require it. Boy, that, thank you for that. I think that is such valuable advice. And, and so speaking of recruiting ads, give us some ideas of how businesses can improve those ads so they're really attracting better applicants. So that would be one way. Are there others? Yeah, a couple come to mind quickly. One is that, that it's an advertisement. And I think Many of them read, many ads that companies run read like bureaucrats wrote them yeah. instead of salespeople writing them. And the reason why is because bureaucrats wrote them. And, <laughs> and I don't mean to take anything away from bureaucrats. We need bureaucrats. They just shouldn't be writing your recruiting ads. Yeah. And the recruiting ads should, should talk you know, transparently and honestly about the benefits your company offers. And I don't mean benefits just in the, you know, like um, time off and that kind of thing, but all the, the, the broad 
array of things that your company offers. So in, I'll, I'll use our, our uh, automotive retail business as an example. We talk about how you get to be part of something that's bigger than yourself because our businesses are not just about making money. We actually um, have, a, have a very significant pro-social focus to them in terms of supporting community organizations. We, we work on a lot of environmental projects at the facilities. One of the things I'm really excited about we're working on now is we're, we're devising um, a, a facility enhancement that allows to become the first uh, franchise dealership in the country that uses rainwater to wash cars. We're going to develop a rain. We're working wow. on getting rainwater to do it. And, and so we have something really exciting to talk about in our ads, that and many other things. And so we do. And, and I guess I invite business owners to think about what makes their company special. And there is something, and there, there are pr- probably many things. And, and I think most business owners running ads are just guilty of, of phoning the ads in and not, not taking the time to think from the applicant's point of view, right. why would I want to choose your company over many others, which right now there are many others competing for the talent you're looking <laughs> for. No kidding. Yeah. 10, no. 10 million openings in the U.S. I, I read oh in the New York goodness. Times. It's, it's like, uh, and, and we're trying to hire now too, because we don't, we don't have a lot of turnover, but we have a little, you know, people do get sure. married and, and leave the state, whatever. And of course we're growing and I've never seen a, a, an environment more difficult than right now to hire people. So th- this is no time to, to bring anything but your A game to your, to your yeah. recruiting. No kidding. I know it's what everyone is saying. And you say in your book, um, we have a moral obligation to run our businesses in a way that minimizes negative externalities and increases benefits to society. So that really is a big part of your uh, mission and focus. Yes, and it's I, I think you did a nice job too of pulling that line out because I think that captures what I'm trying to offer in the book is the idea that, that your business should take care of the stockholders. It needs to, because you need to earn a living and you deserve a really nice return on the significant sacrifices you make as an entrepreneur. And, and I, I can speak from experience that I feel like I deserve, you know, a lot of the, a lot of rewards for that. Cause I, I've given up a lot, yeah. but it, but at the same time, you don't have to wait until you're old and retired or even dead to leave in your will, the benefits to the next generation your business right now today can be serving the community. And, and I invite your audience, I invite uh, small business owners whenever I meet them to, to think about what they can be doing to serve the community and, and not in a, a zero sum way in the sense that they're just writing checks to charities and yeah. strengthening the charity, but weakening their company by pulling capital out. Although that's fine. I mean, I'm not taking anything away from companies that sure. want to write checks and we write checks too. But I'm talking about something bigger and broader and more innovative and ambitious. And I'll give you an example of one of the ways that we do it. We noticed uh, all the way uh, many years ago, we opened in 1998, that the, our business, particular business, was represented uh, almost entirely by middle-aged uh, white men. Yeah. And that's fine. I mean, I'm, I'm now a middle-aged white man and I need <laughs> employment too. So I don't want to take anything away from that. And we have, we employ many of those and I, we have great middle-aged white men serving us in our dealership, but, but that's not enough because there, there were all sorts of representatives from groups that were missing out on the good jobs and the benefits and the, the incomes available in our industry. So we said, well, how can we serve ourselves, take care of the stockholders, but also take care of the stakeholders who depend on our business by stakeholders. I mean, the, the community in this particular case, who, who needs a, a, uh, who need jobs. And, and so we really broadened our net and decided we wanted to have a customer base, I'm sorry, a team base that looked like our customer base. We wanted our, when, when people came in, when a woman came in to buy a car, we wanted to make sure that if she wanted to work with a woman, that there was a woman available to her to, to work with her. And so we've, um, we've really broadened the traditional notion of what, of who you'd expect to be working in a car dealership. And that has served us very well because we've had access to, to a lot more talent than we otherwise would have, you know, just seeking an experienced kind of narrow demographic that's traditionally ex, uh, you would expect to find in a car dealership, but also 
we also serve the community by by bringing people in to these good jobs and, and provide them with opportunity that they wouldn't have otherwise had. Yeah, so there's so much that I love about this. Part of one of the reasons why I, I so enjoyed this book, and actually, and I don't do this often with books, but I yellow highlighted and stickied, you know, pages and <laughs> passages because the way I think for me, one of the things that's valuable about that is that what business owners should embrace is that one of the ways that you build a sustainable growing business is by looking at it from different perspectives, that it's not just about making money, it's about you know making sure that you are serving your constituency and there's more than one. So, you know, and, and when you are, then it just adds to the depth and the and your bottom line, but also your community's bottom line and your employees' bottom line and your customers' bottom line. And everyone wins in a scenario like that. Yeah, I agree. And and we need to take care of those people because because yeah. ultimately the uh, the businesses that don't take care of their own people, well, who do they expect are going to take care of the business, you know? And the same yeah. thing, if, if our communities are falling apart and there aren't people to buy our products, then, right. then what kind of sustainability is there? Okay. Uh, I can talk to the greedy portion of your audience too, though. I mean, there's some people I'm never going to sell. Like I have this, I'd like to think I'm high-minded about these things, but other people just think I'm, I'm full of it. But, but let's talk just about the profitability. Okay. And, and for me, I, I gave you an example of how we have outperformed our automotive competitors and we run circles around them. Our team does because I've got people on my team that, that other dealerships are, are unable to hire for all sorts of different reasons. They're too narrow-minded. They haven't, um, they haven't expanded their idea of who, who would be qualified to serve those positions. I mean, the, the, the list is as long as my arm. So I, I've cherry-picked all the best people in the Boston area for our dealership. And, and our financial results are far superior to the, to the comparable dealership our size. So even if you don't care at all about serving the world, right. I'm making the point, and I think I make it persuasively in the book, yeah. that that it's still the most direct path to the bottom line. Yes, I, I, I totally agree with you. And for anyone who's wondering, it's not like you're paying those people less. It, you, yeah, right. I mean, we're, um, we try, and we talk about this in the book. I, I'd say, let's talk about compensation for a minute because I have a, a big part of the chapter devoted to it. It's very important. It's the, the number one, not the only, but it's the number, re, number one reason that people come to work is that they've got bills to pay. Right. Uh, what keeps them on your team is a lot of other things, but obviously you got to pay them well. And when we first opened, I'd say we were competitive. And, and by competitive, I mean like if an automotive salesperson made $50,000 a year at that time, then we were at 50. And, and we couldn't afford really to, um, to pay any more. But once we got established and we had the revenue to support it, we noticed something. And that is that if you can keep someone longer, they can produce more value for your company than the newer person at a lower salary. So I'll give you an example. Huh. We had, uh, this is a painful one to share, but I think it illustrates the point very nicely. We had a salesperson named Lori who was with us for 10 years. And she just left, um, broke our hearts. She left for love. She moved to another state with her man who, um, who had a job, you know, out of state. So she couldn't stay with us. And we had a customer come in shortly after her departure. And he had bought three or four cars from Lori. And it was just easy, right? The, the, the last three or four. And for whatever reason, he just didn't hit it off with our new person because he really wanted Lori. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he ended up buying a car, but we'll never see him again yeah. because he just didn't have a good experience. Wow. And, and if Lori had been there, 
it would have just been so easy. And we'd probably, so, you know, he was middle-aged guy. There were probably three or four another 10 sales yeah. with him and, and his family in the future. And unfortunately, financial statements don't capture the, the, the losses there. But anyway, right. go back to specifically the compensation point. It's okay to pay, pay your best people a little bit more. And so we do now because we see the value of it and, um, and you get it back. Right. Right, exactly. At this time, I'd like to take a sponsor break. The Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast is happy to be sponsored by Audible.com. And I'm sure you know that Audible.com has thousands of audiobook titles to choose from, but you might not know about the other content. There's podcasts, Audible Originals, guided meditations. Uh, my favorite thing is to be able to listen to different kinds of things all on the same platform. I think it's a time saver uh, and it's like productivity uh, hack for me. I don't have to go jumping from one platform to another. Uh, so we're offering you a free trial. You can go to audibletrial.com slash business growth, sign up for that free trial and then explore on your own. You know, check out the audiobooks, check out the other programs, see what really, you know, resonates with you. Interested in getting some help with your sales strategy? Pick up a copy of Succeed Without Selling on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Staying on, on the topic of um, employees, your plan at Subaru has more female technicians than any other dealership in the country. And so how did you do it? Why did you do it? What's the story? It started with a nationwide technician shortage years ago that mm. persist till today. We're, we're not educating enough young people in our vocational schools to provide the, the uh, technical labor that is needed in American industry. So it's, it's been the case for several years. And, and it just became obvious to me, it's like 100% of our shop was men. And nationwide, only 1% of technicians, which is a shocking number, 1% of technicians are women. I'm like, we're missing out on half the talent, like half of it. And so we rewrote our ads and we knew that the trick was getting the first one. Mm. And once we had the first one, we had all the resources we need to help her succeed. And, and then we would have uh, the opportunity with subsequent applicants to introduce her to them. And, and then they wouldn't be having to rely on our promises of how it actually was to work in our shop. They could actually talk with, with another woman who was succeeding. So, so it took us a long time to find the first one because we have a pretty high bar and we wanted just the right person. But yeah. once we did, it, it all started from there. And, and people, the numbers vary. We've had as high as seven. And, and people have asked, well, you know, how do you get to seven female technicians? And, and my answer, it's a little bit flip, but it, the answer is you, you start with six and you hire one more. <laughs> and, and I think the trick is, is to make sure that you're always moving forward on those things. And, and we can, if it, to, to whatever level of, of detail, we can go into more of that. I do talk about in the book, uh, how you can how you can increase the representation of traditionally unrepresented groups for your benefit and for theirs. It's so it, it's just so unbelievably important, and I it's part of the reason why I'm glad we're talking about that because I completely agree with you. We are doing a real disservice to our young people and to our country by not uh, really promoting the these jobs that pay well, that there's a whole world of people who are perfect, you know, for them. It's a great fit, but, and we've sort of shifted this weird, everyone should go to college. Well, everyone shouldn't go to college and businesses need people who don't need a college degree, but need a skill set. So, uh, and, and there are huge, I have a friend whose daughter is becoming a welder. And good for her because she likes to work with her hands. The country needs welders. You know, we, we can't be doing the same things we were doing in the past and pigeonholing because of 
race or gender or nationality or whatever it is, whatever bias exists. Yeah, and I think there's a bias too, just in terms of the cachet associated with with jobs, with blue collar jobs. But I, I'm a big, you know, I was, I, I'm a white collar guy. You know, I, I have a college education and, and um, I don't have the mind or the physical coordination to, to do those things. So it was yeah. never an option for me. And it was, you know, my interest in, in academic things kind of predisposed me to want to pursue that white collar route. But as you pointed out, it's not right for everybody. And for a lot of people, it's just the right thing because the, there's so much demand for these positions. Right. And I, I don't know that people know it because it, it's like, um, I, I know our, our technicians, we have very young technicians making much, much more than, than they would have if they were engineers working you know, for an engineering firm. I mean, they're just right. great jobs. If you have the skills, then they're, they're really good jobs. Yep, yep. Okay, now I'm gonna shift gears a little and I would love for you to explain what you mean when you say that we live in a business culture that fetishizes metrics. What does that mean? I think a lot of people lean on numbers to justify decisions or give them comfort that they're doing the right thing. Hmm. And, and that's okay. Like when data are available, you should use them, but they can lead you down the wrong road. And let me give an example. If you look, um, one of the worst places you can, you can be in the United States if you want to live is a hospital. Yeah. There are so many people dying right now as we speak of all sorts of different things in hospitals. So if you just look at mortality statistics, where are the places you don't want to be? <laughs> Hospitals are probably the number one place you don't want to be. But if you're in a car wreck, you need to go to a hospital. Right. And to think that mortality statistics would keep you away is mm. absolute insanity. Yet people make the same mistake in business all the time where they take a data set and, and draw the wrong conclusions about it. And that's, that's the danger that I'm talking about. So, so I encourage people to, to take whatever data are available and to make sure that you're, you're gaining the correct insight from it and, and not thinking that um, the data are the, the entire picture. So that feels to me like there are maybe um, particular questions that people should ask themselves when they're looking at a, a data set to sort of keep themselves in check? W would that be? Oh, yeah. There, there's a rigor to decision-making. Oh, sure. I think that's, a, I'm glad you highlighted that because one of them that comes to mind is, you know, do I have the right data? And I'm trying to think of an example, um, you know, a real life example. Give me a moment, see if something sure. comes to mind decision that we have to make. Um, all right, we'll talk about, um, we have a, uh, an old piece of equipment in our shop. It's a, um, it mounts and, and dismounts tires. Mm -hmm. And we're looking at a machine that does it almost automatically. So the technician doesn't have to stand there. And mm -hmm. And the manufacturer of this, this piece of equipment says we're going to save 25% on the time for each technician. So one of the things we're doing is we're just saying, you know, we're just asking the very basic questions. How many of these jobs do we do mm. per, per week, per month, per year, whatever it is? Do we actually, have we tested the data to make sure, yes, we are going to save 25% of the time? Is it really just 5% shorter and the manufacturer is not telling us the whole picture. And then obviously we need to compare that against the cost of the new equipment mm -hmm. and the additional labor um, that we'll have available to do other things that we can, we can sell on other jobs. So there's, there's all these things. So I think mm. to just accept the manufacturer's assumption that we're gonna save 25%, that's a good starting place but we have more data to gather on our, our own end. 
And, and of course, there are going to be some things in there that we can never quite define. We don't know how fast we're going to grow. And, and so we don't know how many times in the future we're going to need the machine. We, right. know, we don't think we're going to be contracting, but we don't know how much we're growing. So there, there are always going to be question marks. And we try not to get hung up on the question marks. In other words, to delay the decision so long, trying to get a complete data set <laughs> that we miss an opportunity right in front of us. Yeah, it was obvious enough with the data we had. So there's a whole um, nuance, and and it obviously, I don't know if there's a single prescription for how you handle it in every situation, but but I think the philosophy I'm trying to to support here is just make sure that you um, you gather the, the right amount of data that you can reasonably obtain in a relatively short amount of time, and then make a decision. And if it turns out to be the wrong one, then at least you'll have the information for the next time. Right, right. It's sort of that trust but verify sort of mentality that, okay, this is what I'm being told. Now let me just see if I can poke holes in it. Yeah, yeah. And of course, if you have a few other people involved, then you're mm -hmm. going to get a few perspectives. So you don't right. want a huge committee making this decision about whether to buy this piece of equipment. But you know, just in our case, we have... I'm working with my partner and our service director. There's three of us, you know, kind of running the numbers on this. We don't need right. to be looking at it, but but one person wouldn't be enough. Right, right. Okay. I like that. That that's good. Okay. So I want to talk some sort of about marketing, but but really about websites. So I'm curious about like common mistakes that you see businesses making when it comes to their website? Probably the biggest one is that the website doesn't hit you over the head with the primary reason or the small group of reasons why you should do business with that company instead of all the rest. So if you go to, I mean, I'm thinking like you go to a plumber's website and it's like, we fix pipes <laughs> and we've got good customer service and we've been in business for 20 years. And it's like, yeah. well, there's a baseline, like people just assume reasonably that if you're a plumbing company that's in business, that you know how to fix pipes, you know, it's right. like, you've got anything special. So in the, in the case, and I'll bring something that, that I know more about than plumbing, in our case, the auto business, but I think that the businesses, the, uh, the examples apply to many other businesses, many other industries, is that, that when you go to planetsubaru.com, and I invite your, your readers to check it out, I think what, what you'll find is that you don't have to dig very long to start picking up on all the reasons why you would want to do business with us rather than mm -hmm. someone else. So of course, we have the direct, we have a why buy page which answer the question, why should you buy from us instead of another car dealership? So we have, it's very directly for the people who just want to zone right in, home right in, if you will, on the, on the list of reasons that we've thought about that clearly differentiate us from the competition, you can find that. But there are a lot of subtleties too. And, and I'll give you another example. We have lots and lots of research that we do. Like we compare different vehicles. One of our our most popular pages on our website is to compare the Subaru Outback with the Subaru Forester. Those are the two best-selling models. It's mm -hmm. a very frequent question when people come into the showroom. So if you Google, what is the difference between a Forester and Outback anywhere in the country on the first page, you'll see our page. And, and we're not hitting you over the head directly on that page with why you should do business with us. But if you're anywhere in the Boston area, We'd hope that people are going to figure out, and they do. Wow, these are the folks who actually know something about the product. So there are other options, maybe even one closer to my house, but I want to go to the dealership that has provided all this very useful information and has helped answer one of the most important questions I had about which product offered by Subaru I should even be interested in. So that's a little more subtle. It, down one more level of subtlety, we have videos where our greeter dogs, we call them our blue collar workers, our greeter dogs will jump out of cars and stuff. So, and, and we're not, again, we're not saying you should buy your car at Planet Subaru because, but we know that Subaru owners are, are uh, very predisposed to like dogs. And, and we're just, it's a wink to all those people who also love dogs that, that we're a fun place and that 
they're likely to enjoy their car purchasing experience much more with us than someone else. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, I'm imagining that the reason, well, you don't see your differentiator as, and I'm doing air quotes, great customer service that, that while you know that you are, that you provide great customer service, that's not the differentiator. It, it's all of the things that make up the experience that your staff has, but also that therefore your customers are going to have and the way you do business and fun and, and that sort of thing, that those are more the differentiators. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So, so I'd encourage business owners to think about that category of statements that have lost all meaning to the purchasing public. One of them is great customer service. One of the things is we've been in business for X number of years. Um, another one is, um, oh, it just came, um, uh, just leapt out of my mind, but so there, there are those things that oh, oh like lowest price. How could I forget? You know, where, <laughs> you know, it's like all those things. They, 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 people just disregard them. You, you, you the, the yeah. words. It's like the peanuts voice. You know, the want, 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 want. Yeah. No need to waste any words or pixels on your website on those things. What we found is that that people really connect with values. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that's the only way. But if you look at even like um, uh, Zappos comes to mind with the shoes, you know, it's, it's not, yeah, they have good customer service and, and you can send the shoes back if they don't fit and all that. But, but there are a lot of companies that'll do that. It's just, it's just a cool company. And, and I think Costco has, has done that to some extent too, that, that they take really good care of their people. And right. so they don't, they, they offer competitive prices, but you don't have to feel guilty about going right. there. And, and I know I have family members who, who won't darken the doorstep of, of a Walmart yeah. because they, they say that, um, you know, they, they just don't see their own personal values as being consistent with that company. So, so one of the things that we try to do with, with our website is for those people that respond to that connection, we try to say, here, here's who we are. And we know that not everybody's going to like it. I and mean, we've been gay yeah. friendly since 1998. And, you know, we've had the, the equality stickers in our, on our front door and my, my business partner and brother is gay. So it was sort of like an obvious reason to do it. And, and, you know, people would, when they saw, I, I'd saw people, they'd see the sticker. I'd turn I'd see them turn around and leave. Wow. And, and it's like, but we said, all right, we know we're going to lose some percentage sure. of population, but the people who connect with that are, are really going to, because I'm the same way when I buy something, I mean, I want to buy, I want to do business with people that share my values. And, and not everyone is like that. There are, there is a, a minority and it's unfortunately a much larger minority than I'd probably want to want to think that, you know, it's, it's just about price. You know, if, if they can save some amount of money, they're going to do it. But, yeah. but beyond that, there, the, the majority of people, I think are, are looking for something quite a bit more than price and, and they're looking yeah. for some kind of connection. So that to the extent that you can, you can find in your company, what it is that resonates with your your likely audience, then then I encourage I encourage that. While staying with with an integrity, another thing you you say in your book is every little and big decision you make is either a deposit or a withdrawal in the integrity of your organization's reality. Yeah, so you know that expression the the fish stinks from the head down. Yeah, yeah, and. And I, I, I came up with a, the opposite of that, which is the, the rose smells good from the petals up, you know, which is the, the opposite that, that the leadership of the company, you know, you can stink like a rotten fish or you can smell lovely like a rose, but it's all about the decisions you make every day. And, and there are some examples I talk about in the book, which we can discuss or not today, where, where overall, I mean, I've had a career, a lifetime of making good decisions that invested in that undealership reality, that undealership value system that really defines who we are as, as a company. But, but there have been some, some times when I haven't either. And, 
and uh, obviously I look back um, embarrassedly on those times. And, and if I could go back in time, I, I wouldn't make those mistakes. But I guess I kind of look at it like drilling holes in an airplane wing that, that an airplane can fly pretty well, even with a few holes drilled in the wings. But the more holes you drill, eventually you're going to crash that plane. And before you crash it, it's going to be really hard to fly <laughs> and, and difficult to manage. So I always tried to go in every day and, and make sure that my decisions were consistent with our values as a company. And I didn't always get it right, but I did enough of them in harmony with our values that, that the plane flew very straight and true. And, um, and those few holes were not numerous enough to, to crash the plane or make it hard to fly. Do you think it's it's easier to make decisions when you have some sort of compass? Totally. I think if you've established what the values of your company are from the outset, then everything falls into place from there. Yeah. And and it it also becomes very obvious when you're out of step with them. Right. And your team will help you course correct on that because if they see you doing something that um, is inconsistent, they will they will tell you as will your customers. So let me give you a brief example of uh, these are painful examples, but I I, I should it's therapy to share them, and I think they might be useful for the benefit of your audience. That we had a business manager that we hired early on. And the business manager, the person that gets the loan approved, and if you're interested in an extended warranty or something, you can buy that from that person. And and um, we were so desperate. We were not very well established in terms of our ability to attract quality people back then. And we ended up with a person who had experience, which we, we don't do anymore. Yeah. But at the time, she came into us with, when she was brusque and um, had a lot of the, the techniques. I mean, she wasn't a criminal. But the high pressure stuff, he did a little too much of that. And, and I started getting feedback from customers. They were like, Jeff, this is the third car I bought from you. And the first two were great. But that lady, mm. she, is, she is totally out of step with this company. I mean, those are the kind of comments I started to get. And, wow. and uh, anyway, we, we, we tried to work with her to, to adapt to our to our system and values and approach and, and ultimately that failed and, and we had to ask her to, to work for somebody else. But but the point of the whole thing is that that we had made it clear when we opened or, or shortly thereafter actually we we had, uh, gathered together all of our our values as a company and something that we called the nine planets. There used to be nine planets in the solar system, but then Pluto got ejected. So there are only eight now, but at the time there were nine before the scientists decided Pluto wasn't a planet. So, and, and, and these are the kinds of things we talk about, like always doing the right thing and, and that kind of thing. So, so our, our team understood it, our customer understood it. When we screwed up, it was obvious to everybody we were screwing up. Wow. And, and I guess, as painful as it is, you want it to be obvious to everyone because you want to know right away if a decision has been made that's out of step. Yeah, I mean, ideally, you wouldn't even make the decision in the first sure. place. And sure. I think that's probably the better <laughs> thing is that is that you catch it, you know, in the in the the team meeting, you know, we'll say, well, what can we do this? Like, no, no, we can't do that. I'll give you an example. So another example, we have there's so very competitive you know, the car business is very competitive. You can, you can buy a new Subaru in Boston at, you know, within an hour of Boston at probably 10 different dealerships. And, and so what that tends to do, there's a reason why there's so much lying and, and lack of transparency and dishonesty in dealership advertising is because dealerships know that, that you're not likely to get the phone call if you're the highest price. But anyway, we, we post the price on our website. You can actually, it's going to sound radical, but you can do it. You can print out an ad from our website, any listing. When you show up, that's the price you pay. <laughs> that, that shouldn't be radical. I understand that. But that's, that's very unusual in the car business. Yeah. So anyway, the competition is always playing these shell games with asterisk pricing. You know, they'll put the price as $20,000. 
but you can you only get twenty thousand dollars if you qualify for certain rebates, and of course the rebates require military service or something like that, which you know a small percentage of the population qualify for. And and so I remember at one meeting this came up, you know, should we be doing more of that? And and it was just like that the per the poor person who suggested almost got got chased out of the room. You know, it was like no, like we can't, like okay, it's fine. You know, any ideas on the table but we're not right. going to implement something like that because just so out of step with who we are. And we know we're going to lose the customers who are not savvy or sophisticated enough to understand how many shenanigans there are in the car business, but they're going to be people who love us and never buy a car anywhere else because they just got straight answers and a good price right from the beginning. Exactly. Right. And it's about the long-term relationships and, and building that level of trust and authenticity and honesty that, you know, you're not going to get all of the customers, but you're going to get the ones that you want and you're going to get repeat business. And they're going to be the ones who refer people to you because it is a better buying experience. Yeah. And they're so much more fun to deal with too, not only for our team, but when they come back, it's like there's no um, antagonism or distrust or it's just, it's just easy and good. Yeah. 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 And it really, it matters. And especially, I mean, I think it matters all the time, but I would say, especially in today's business environment, which is so unbelievably competitive and just seems to get more competitive every day. I agree. Yeah, boy, I, I'll, I'll tell you what. So Jeff, I mean, obviously I've said, I, I love the book. I really do because I love these philosophies that you bring to you, that you have brought to your businesses and experienced in real life how well they work. And then you were gracious enough to put it in a book so that other business owners could learn about, you know, what works without a heavy investment, without turmoil. You know, it's not a difficult thing. It can actually be done and people can meet their own values and, you know, help their community and do all these things and still have a thriving business. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And, and I, you know what, I love to sell books because it's an opportunity to, um, to share the ideas in the book with a wider audience. But if anyone in your audience just doesn't have enough book budget left, because I know you can spend a lot on books, I, I hope that they'll visit jeffmoral.com where I have bonus chapters that the, the publisher couldn't fit in the book. And, and those templates that I mentioned earlier mm-hmm. in the, um, it, for the interview process, we have all those process sheets that we use every day in the business, all that's there for free. And, and I put it there because I've, I've enjoyed so much abundance in my life. I don't, I don't need to sell any of this anymore. It's like I, the, the royalties from the book I'm donating to charity. It's something that's just important to me. I thought that these ideas really worked for us. And, and I thought, if we had more businesses doing it, that they would, they would succeed and, and they would also improve their little corner in the world, which would somehow come, come to, to redound to my benefit in, in some way that I can't even know. Oh my gosh. Uh, seriously. I think it is so great. And you know, when I was growing up, my mother used to say, um, you need to carve out your own little niche and make it the best little niche that you can. And I totally took that to heart and, as you feel, if everyone just made their own little niche, the best little niche, then the world in total would be a better place. Yes. So yep. that's what we're working towards. Yep. Yes, I know you are. And I'm really just tremendously grateful that we've had the opportunity to have this conversation for you to share these concepts and these ideas with my listeners. And thank you for, for sharing that they can, um, go and get bonus chapters. Seriously, folks, this is one of the best books I have read in a mighty long time. And just is, it has so much to offer for you and your business that I highly encourage you to get the book and also go get the the bonus chapters. So Jeff, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for spending time with me. Thanks, Diane. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Discover more episodes of this podcast and explore others 
at evergreenpodcast.com. As always, continue to prosper and be curious. And if you're looking to get your sales strategy headed in the right direction, pick up a copy of Succeed Without Selling on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Until we meet again on another episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, goodbye and good day. Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year Hard Rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzwar, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian jiu-jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.